with uh, you reviewing with me. Uh, who could give a rough and ready uh, uh, definition of what we've been meaning by the word discipling? The preacher's not allowed to answer this question. By discipling, we've been talking about discipling within the context of God's people. Who can give me a rough and ready definition? Preacher wants to wants to say it, but I'm not. I'm, I'm restraining him. Hi, David. Uh, I missed a few of these, but my understanding is it's helping someone grow in their relationship with Christ. Okay, that's a great rough and ready. Uh, helping someone grow in their relationship with Christ. Yeah. Uh, what I would say is it's deliberately, intentionally relating to another Christian, right? So there, so to fill out Damon's excellent definition, it's a relational, it's a relational ministry with the aim of doing them good spiritually. All right. So that was our, that's what we did at the start. Then we asked, why should we do it? We saw that this is critical, that being engaged with other believers for our mutual edification is critical for our joy, for the good of others, and for God's glory. And then last week, Kevin considered different barriers and excuses why someone would not uh, engage in the work of discipleship, and he labored to set those objections aside uh, from Scripture. By the way, I was really, really delighted at how well last week's uh, discussion went and how much you guys really, there's a lot of give and take, and I appreciated that, and I hope we can get some of that going today a little bit too. There's one more question we need to answer before we turn to some specific and practical matters that will occupy the rest of the class. So here's the final broad questions. What context or venue is best for establishing mutually edifying discipleship relationships? And how do we get started? So today we're going to argue from scripture and from practical considerations that the primary context for our discipling relationships, and I don't think this is going to blow anybody's circuits, the primary context should be the local church where we find ourselves as members. Now, why do we even need to say that? Because you may have any number of relationships with believers that are outside the context of the local church. Maybe, for many of us, it's our families. For many of us, you have Christian friends outside or Christian Christian workmates, and by all means, seek to do spiritual good to all of your friends and relations who are in Christ. We're not saying that it's wrong to be intentional and have spiritually encouraging relationships with people outside the church. That is not the intention. We're also not saying that it's bad to enter into these at school or at work, but the framework that God has really set up to have these kind of relationships is the local church. That doesn't mean that it has to take place in this building, of course. And it doesn't mean that only the leaders of the church should disciple, just me and the other elders. Nor does it mean that you can't invest in people outside our church community. But what we are saying is that it's biblically wise. It's biblically wise that the majority of the time and energy that we spend in building others up and being built up ourselves, 
the majority of that time and focus and energy should be spent within the local church. And quick scan of the room, I think we're all RGCers here, so within, well, no, not Kevin. He should do it at his church. But the rest of us should do it within the context of redeeming grace. Not online. Not online. Not just out there generally, but within our own local body. I'm going to give ten reasons why that should be. So obviously these will not be long. You know, these will be paragraph or so for each one. Why disciple in the local church? This isn't exhaustive. It's not any particular order of importance. Why disciple in your local church? Number one, for the good of our church. Because God has called the church to be pure. It will not do us any significant good if we, the body at Redeeming Grace Church, are a den of unrighteousness. Right? That would be to our everlasting shame, if that were the case. God has called his church to be pure. Titus 2, 11-14 says, But the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all people, training out grace. Grace! We love grace. Grace Frees us from our sins, forgives us of our sins, means there's no penalty for those sinners who have put their trust in Christ. Does that mean then that we go on to continue in sin? Of course not. The grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for the blessed hope and the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Christ Jesus, who gave himself for us to redeem us from every lawless deed and to purify for himself a people for his own possession, zealous to do what is good. So incidentally, it's not law, law, law that trains us to deny ungodliness and worldly desires. It's grace, the grace of the gospel trains us to renounce ungodliness and to pursue the purity of the church and the good works that go along with that. It is in part through discipling relationships that we help other Christians to grow in knowledge and personal holiness. And that's a great part of what Jesus even came into the world to do. So we're laboring alongside his ministry. This should be desired that our own local church would be a shining example of God's holiness and the transforming power in the lives of his people. So this gets at something I I want you to reflect on for a little bit. There's a bit of a paradox. We want our church to be holy. And we want our church to be messy. What do I mean? And how can those two go together? Well, I guess if the church wasn't a little messy, there'd be no need for whole. <laughs> okay, so the mess provides the context for the need for holiness. Yeah. Why do I say we want the church to be messy? Yeah, Chris. Like we've talked about uh, before as far as unity as opposed to uniformity. Okay, unity in terms of uniformity. So there's that may be uh, not so much messiness as chaos, right? There's a little bit of chaos when when, when the fact when we're all unified but not uniform. Yeah. We don't want people thinking that they have to clean themselves up before they come to the church. Like they have to get all their ducks in a row before they can be part of us. Oh, absolutely. Doesn't that make total sense? By the way. Have you noticed how many new folks we've had over the last month? 
Have you met any of them? I hope you have. There are a ton of new people who are coming. Do we want the new people to feel like this is a place where they can bring their mess? Did, do you want to be able to come here and bring your mess? Some of you are not in very, very bad at those. We want the church to be a place where, where we're okay with messiness. How is that different from saying we're okay with unholiness? How can, we, how can both of those things happen at the same time? We want our, our messiness, probably won't put this right, we want our <coughs> messiness to be brought to the Lord. We are trainable and changing and open with people. We're not here to just be a mess and get warm fuzzies and then go home and keep our messes to ourselves. Yes. So the, the thing that makes the difference is that it's mess that is being in the process of transformation. Right? Jesus is in the process of transforming messy sinners from the inside out. And so we're not okay with a status quo that says, I'm, I'm a mess, deal with it. Very common in our culture right now, correct? My authenticity tells me that you need to just deal with me in my mess, and you don't, and, and any attempt to encourage me to change anything about that, you know, is offensive, right? So instead, we're actually seeing, yes, bring your mess to Jesus and watch him transform it. First, through faith initially, that, that invades our lives with the Holy Spirit, and then increasingly over time. So, we want to see messy people coming into these doors. We want to, as God's Continuing to clean up our mess, we want it to be a place where we can talk about those things and not just not we're not turn, holiness does not equal hiding the the stuff that's not there. What it, what does it mean? It's it's a commitment to watching the transforming work of Jesus work itself out. Why did Jesus not save you and immediately take you up to heaven? Right? Why this transition period where you're both holy and a mess? <laughs> Well, I think it's part is because he's wanting sinners to tell other sinners about Jesus. So our ministry is so that's why I say that the church is both holy and a place where we welcome the mess, right? So and then we work at helping one another as we seek to to see holiness built. Okay, any questions about that? Is that in contrast to the temple? where you have to be ritually pure before entering? Yes and no. Great question, Josiah. Um, is it different from the old covenant with the temple where you had to be ritually pure in order to enter? No, in the sense that Jesus' perfect imputed righteousness comes to me as soon as I believe. And so I am ritually pure. I am clean as I come into God's church. I am justified, fully justified. But... You know, in terms of how it works out, you know, in, 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 on the ground, yeah, you know, it's, it's a bunch of messed up people. I mean, we're a bunch of messed up people. Well, I, I think the, one of the loveliest metaphors is that of a field hospital, right? We're a field hospital. We're, we're, we're here, we're in the process of being rehabilitated, and the goal is so that we can be out seeking to serve our king and our captain. So... Follow up? 
third. Okay, good. All right. Reason number two why we disciple within the context of the church. Because you yourself do not have every spiritual gift. We should consider the value of church-based discipling as a way to balance our own weaknesses and lack of gifts. Every single believer in this room has the Holy Spirit, and that means that you can be a source of spiritual encouragement for others, even if you're a baby Christian. But guess what? We also have areas of weakness and spiritual blindness that may also limit our helpfulness in discipling. You do not have it all. You are not... It was not God's intention for you to have it all, right? Why do we have the eyes and the nose and the feet and the hands in the body, according to 1 Corinthians 12? Because all together, we are the body of the Lord Jesus Christ. So, you know, I think by all means, let us be out there in our workplaces seeking to share the gospel with our friends in our workplaces. Yes, 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 yes. But as long as you're the only Christian that they know, all they're seeing of Jesus is his eyeball. All they're seeing of Jesus is his hand. All they're seeing of Jesus is a part of the whole. What do we therefore want our friends to do? We want them to come into the body and watch the whole body, the whole body of Christ, with all of its various parts operating. In love, right? And that's a more full, that's a fuller picture, right? Let's say you're really strong in this area of discipleship, but weak in this area of discipleship. Well, what is your friend needs to see someone who's strong in that area too. So as we bring our friends into the context of the church, which hopefully they're, they're willing to do because they're okay with the fact that it's messy, right? That then allows them to see the whole body working together. So, the, the reason that we do discipleship and evangelism in the context of the church is because they see the whole body of Christ. If you're hesitant to engage in deliberate discipling relationships because you feel you lack the full skill and wisdom for the task, that should be good news to you. God does not call you to be sufficient to this great task. Even Paul said, who's sufficient for these things? In kindness, God has given us the church. And the church is sufficient for the work he intends to give her. So when you disciple someone with it, or you work to mutually encourage someone within the context of a shared church experience, you realize that you're not, they don't, they don't need to look like you, you know, and they need to be surrounded with a network of people. We all need to be surrounded with a network of people that are helping us grow toward maturity. Does that make sense? And isn't that freeing? You're not responsible to, rep- to, to be everything to everybody. God's gifted you for what you are gifted to do, right? You don't have everything your friend needs, so your friend needs a church. All right, number three, because the church provides better and greater accountability. So the church provides a context for accountability that is greater than that of our our own friendship alone. It's like a spider web, right? A spider web catches flies. Why? Because it's basically taken a whole space and filled it with sticky stuff. Right? And in that same way, we have a network, a web of relationships within the context of redeeming grace that provides greater support and accountability than just a single friendship alone. If I have a relationship with a Christian friend, you know, out in the community and he wanders away from Christ, I don't have any, I don't have any means or really any leverage other than my own exhortation for him to return. But in the context of the whole church, 
if one of us strays. We have a whole network of people and a, net, and a web of relationships which allow for the context to call the one who's straying back. Right? So the accountability that comes from having a whole body and a spiritual safety net, that will help your, heart, your friend in hard times more than just your own relationship alone. Whether it's that they're going through a period of sorrow and grief, whether they're going through a period of struggle with sin, whatever it is that they're struggling with, the network of the church provides a ton more support than you can yourself. Right? That's why you want to be doing your ministry of of, uh, of relational edification within the context of the church. Uh, a, a group of people in a community can know a person so much better than you can alone. If you meet with a friend from work once a week for coffee, there's just serious limitations even to how much you can know in that person's life. It can be pretty easy to hide from one person. A lot harder to hide from a whole body of loving, of loving people there's a better chance that the mix of the relationships will provide a depth, a layer, a texture of insight that's going to result in their spiritual good. Okay, number four. You have a limited amount of time. You have a limited amount of time. We already talked last week. Kevin did a great job of explaining how one of the excuses is how on earth am I going to find the time to do any of this? Our time is precious and we have lots of responsibilities. So the fact that you're doing... This kind of ministry in the context of the church gives you a great... Do you have to come up with some new source of, in, of material to work with a buddy that's in your home group and mutually accountability? What can you do? What are the things that you can do that you know that both he and you can be on the same page with? Reading the Word. Reading the Word together. You can both open your Bibles. What else can you do? What have you both encountered in the past week? Church. Church! Which means you both heard what? A sermon. Right? Which means that instead of you coming up with a whole bunch of material, you can just talk with one another about the sermon. Or the course seminar. Or you were at home group together. How did, you know, and it could be your own home group. Like, how do you think the home group went this past time? Wow, good questions came from so-and-so. Or it can be, well, how did your, you know, you're not in the same home group. Well, how did your home group, what was your discussion like? How did you come back? You know, here's the questions we talked about, right? So that it forms a core of, of shared content that you can discuss. That just means that it's just more streamlined, right? You want to start with baby steps? Just ask someone, how are you doing? How, did, how are you doing with the sermons? How, did, how are you liking First Corinthians, right? That can be very basic, and then it, it just allows for a particular... Um, you, can, you can work to apply, you can work to discuss, you can work to um, drill down, because, and you're not creating all that content because it's already been there. All right, so save yourself some time. Take it, leverage the things that the church is doing. Because God is glorified, reason number five, because God is glorified as the body grows together. Individualistic Christianity, I hope you believe, is an oxymoron. You were never meant to live the Christian life alone. Christianity is a team sport. If you feel that you're growing in maturity as a Christian while you ignore those around you, I would challenge you as to how mature you actually are. So at what point are you maturing if the body of Christ is not reflecting his character, Jesus' character, in increasing clarity? God intends for us together to glorify him through our life as a church so that we strive to grow toward him as a family. 
So Ephesians 4, 15, and 16 are great for this. Speaking the truth in love. Speaking the truth in love. What does that mean? We're actually talking to one another. We're actually speaking truth to one another into one another's lives. We are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, even Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. Okay, Ethan, what happens if you do leg day after leg day after leg day after leg day after leg day and you never do what other other kinds of days there are? What happens? Bigger on the bottom than you are on the top. <laughs> and how will that go? I mean, it's going to hurt. Why is that not ideal? You want um, everything to be proportional. You want proportionality, right? Right. I mean, I imagine if Isaiah, right, Isaiah is, you know, you know, growing like a beanpole right now, but he's growing in proportion. I mean, he's as skinny as all get out, but he's growing in proportion, right? It's not just his arms that are growing and his legs are, you know. So we want all things, we want to be building, all the muscles need to be involved in building up the body, all the joints. Do you feel superfluous and unnecessary? You are not. You are not. You have something to provide to the body. If you withhold that and do not provide it and do not work through the ministry of mutual edification to build one another up, that is going to harm the proportionality of the body. We don't want to be one giant torso with little skinny legs, you know, as, a, as the body of Christ at Redeeming Grace or have enormous biceps and, you know, no quads or anything like that. All right, so the body of Christ grows together by that which every joint supplies. Every joint, not just the preachers, not just the elders, every joint. You are not immaterial. All right. Okay, so halfway through with those 10 reasons, questions so far. Number six, because building up the church is what you were gifted to do. We've almost covered this partly already. But remember, in 1 Corinthians 12, he says, Now there are a variety of gifts, but the same Spirit. There are varieties of ministries, the same Lord. A variety of effects, but the same God who works all things in all persons. But to each one is given the manifestation of the Spirit, uh, so that you can be really, 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 really good Christian on your own. That's why you were given your spiritual gift. No. For the common good. For the common good. Why was Keith given the gifts that he has? For your good. Why was Scott given the gifts he's been given? For Ken's good. Why is Holly's gifts been given for, for Heather's good? Right? For the common good, we've been given these spiritual gifts. God intends us to steward them. And the context for that is the church. Strive to excel, 1 Corinthians 14, again, strive to excel in building up the church since you're eager for the manifestations of the Spirit. The purpose of our spiritual gifts is to build the church up. Number seven, because discipling is a primary way to show love for Christ and for the church. If you love Christ's church, then I can think of better, few better ways to show it than intentionally setting out to do spiritual good for your brothers and sisters here. And if you're a member here, you actually have a covenant obligation. 
We're in a covenant bond with other with the other members here. You committed yourselves to them. They committed themselves to you. You have an obligation in love to see them flourish. Right? So we saw in John 15 a couple weeks ago how Jesus loved us by laying down his life and opening up God's truth to us. And we do the same. And, you know, First uh, John has a ton of wonderful and slightly scary information that talks about if you say you love God and you hate your brother. And what is hatred? It's, it's really just a failure to love. If you hate your brother and you say you love God, you're a liar. You're a liar and the truth is not in you. He who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. Now, that, in the context of that, really does mean providing material resources to one another, right? There should be no needy ones among us, right? We can't, we can't say be warmed and filled, go off and have no lunch because you don't have any food, right? We're to actually take care of one another's physical needs. But then also, I think it's a, a, a logical implication of that is we need to be working at loving one another by meeting each other's spiritual needs, helping one another to grow and flourish, Okay? That's how we demonstrate our love for one another, which is an expression of our love for God. Reason number eight. Church-based discipling just seems to be the assumption of the whole New Testament. Right? One of the money texts is uh, Hebrews 10, 23-25. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. Yes! That's awesome. How... Do we do that? And let us consider how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds. Ah, we're supposed to be encouraging one another in love, to love, and to good deeds. You encourage me and challenge me to engage in good deeds. I do the same for you. How does that happen? Oh, not forsaking our own assembling together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another. And all the more as you see the day drawing near. So we gather. We gather here primarily. And then we have other gatherings that we we involve ourselves in. We gather. We don't forsake the assembly. But we encourage one another. Guess what? We're going to have a share time today. Guess what? That's a great time for you to encourage one another. Right? Do you come ever to share time with the... Th- you know, I mean, you could pretty much guess it's going to be every other week, right? The pattern changes sometimes. Do you have something? Do you ever think of... How can I bring something so that while we assemble together, I can encourage my brothers and sisters with a view to the fact that the day is drawing near? The day is drawing near. I need to be busy with these love and good deeds things now because the time is short. All right. Virtually every epistle in the New Testament was written to specific local churches to encourage mutual spiritual growth. You can look at that in all the different things. All all those letters are talking about helping these guys, helping these churches to love one another and to build into one another. The context is assumed to be the local church. Number nine, because church-based discipling displays unity in the midst of diversity, or as Chris said, unity in the midst of non-uniformity. Um, in his book, The Disciple-Making Church, Bill Hull makes the point that it is fairly easy to form a parachurch discipling ministry of similar people with similar interests. Who was involved in a campus ministry when you were in somewhere in your past? Okay, quite a few of you. 
What kind of people were there? College students. College students. College students. Which is great. We love college students getting together to help one another and edify one another. But what's going to happen if you have, if your Christian fellowship is only with other 18 to 24 year olds, 18 to 22 year olds? Is that going to be, show you the broad swath of Christian discipleship? No. That's why we don't have just, just moms groups or just college groups or just Christian Medical and Dental Association. You know, we, we don't have just the church provides diversity. The church provides diversity of experience. I used to say to because every year I could guarantee in, in college ministry, I could guarantee that I'd have some freshmen who would, I, it would be difficult to convince them they needed to go to the church because they had, they had engaged in our campus ministry. And you know what I would say to them? You need babies and old people. You need vast differences in... You need to not just have your Christian community be people who look like you and who have the same issues that you do. You, know, you need to have the diversity of God's people in order... And, and that can be all, any number of kinds of diversity, right? It can be socioeconomic diversity. It can be ethnic diversity. It can be... Um, can be age diversity. We need to be involved in one another's lives. So I tell folks not to just spend time with people like themselves. In the church, we see the glory and worth of the gospel displayed when people who are not like each other relate lovingly to one another out of a love that's focused in the gospel. Does that make sense? It is not hard to love people that are like you and think like you. It is hard It is harder to love people that are very different from you. So, Levi, I'm going to put you on the spot. What did I encourage you this week to see the church as? A discipling church. A discipling church, yep. What did I encourage you to try and do? Talk to people, ask them how they're doing. Yeah, just the kids in the youth group? No. No, who? Everyone. Everyone, right? The church, see the church, not just him. All of us should be seeing the, 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 the broad spectrum of the diversity of the church as a gold mine. You know, you have people who have experienced the gospel differently than you have. Take advantage of that because you have lots to learn from them. We strengthen our Christian witness when we show unity in the midst of our diversity. So, yeah, Chris. I, someone sneezed or something when you said that. <laughs> Didn't your dad have a saying about not just loving the lovely ones or something to that end? Don't just love the lovely ones, Mom? Beautiful people. Don't just love the beautiful people? Yeah, don't, don't um, just so love them. Tall, tan, and terrific, Brad. Tall, tan, and terrific? Right. The tall, tan, and terrific. Yeah, <laughs> all of my female relatives are waiting in here. <laughs> <laughs> Don't forget the waves and strengths, right? Don't get offended if no, you don't know, feel like the waves and strengths. But the, the point being, the whole church is valuable. The big toe is valuable, which means we need to actually learn from the big, you know, we, we actually have. So, 
If you tend to find yourself gravitating within RGC to people who are of the same interests, the same lifestyle, the same hobbies, the same life stages, then just check yourself. If you say, who are the five people that I'm closest to at RGC and all of them look really, really like you, check yourself. Think about, only spending time with folks like yourself can be self-love, right? You can just like yourself and you like other people that are like you. No, learning to love people who are not like you is the better indicator of someone growing in Christ-likeness. So think of someone in your home group. Take a second. Think of someone in your home group who is the same gender as you, but in all other respects is the most different from you. So women, think of another woman. Men, think of another man who's most different from you. What is something you'd want to learn from them? What's a way that you could be a blessing to them? Not just the people that are like you. Love those who are unlike you to the glory of God. Okay, last note, one, number ten. Because the church is more healthy when it has a whole culture of disciples. So we want to take a panoramic look at what discipling looks like in the context of the church. It can take the form of a program. We're not going to be doing that here at RGC. That's not what scripture envisions. It seems that in a local church body, the nature of discipling relationships is more organic. Is more organic. Intentional, but not necessarily structured. Deliberate, but not clearly defined. To take one example, Titus 2. The older women are to do what? To teach the young women, to train the young women, to love their husbands, to love their children, to be sensible, pure, workers at home, kind, being subject to their own husbands, that the word of God may not be dishonored. Right. Is that going to be like, okay, older woman A, you hook up with, older, with younger woman B, A. You know, it's not, no, just in the warp of woof and life, the older women in the church should be seeking to help the younger women with the things that they particularly need help with. That's just how God wants it to go. It's, you know, there's a little bit of trickle-down there. Because they've seen it all and done it all. <laughs> and these ladies haven't seen it all and done it all. Same with guys. It just isn't mentioned in, in Titus in that sense. It seems that in a local church body, this is supposed to just be organic and, and intentional, but not particularly structured or defined. It doesn't mean that you can't ever have a structure or something. But be working at just developing these relationships. It, it's not organizational or management theory. It's revolving around love. Love, 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 love. So our elders want to encourage you and want you to take joy in being part of not a discipling program where you sign on the dotted line, but a culture of discipling, a loving network of relationships where it's normal for individual members of RGC to set out to do one another's spiritual good. Where you don't need to sign up for anything or be recruited or get permission before you establish mutually encouraging discipling relationships where members just understand that it's good for them to meet for lunch or for coffee to talk about spiritual things, where mutual encouragement is seen as normal and basic, where accountability and transparency are delighted in, this is what we want to encourage here at RGC, us living, to quote the Flourish book, side by side with one another. How do we grow such a culture? Our leaders have to model it. Our leaders have to be the pace setters in this by seeking relationships themselves that do them good and seeking to do good to others. We need to not create structural barriers to inhibit it. That's on the leadership to do that. 
And we need to be encouraging one another to take personal responsibility for it. Ultimately, who is responsible for creating a culture of discipleship at RGC? The elders or you? Both. Yes. We have to model it and be thinking about it. You have to do it and engage in it. We can tell you to do it all you want, and if you won't do it, not going to help anybody. You know, you can do it, and if you're not being led by us, then that's going to probably just end up in a little bit of chaos, right? But you're responsible for it. The elders are responsible for it. It's both. And how to get started. Really, you know, you want to be thinking just basics of who and when and what. So who? Who should you seek to invest your time into? That's lots of important considerations to take into account. Who do you know? Who do you think you might be best able to encourage? What are the greatest needs in the church? Those are good questions to be asking. You know, the, one of the best things you can do is simply work to establish relationships with people, whether that's new folks, whether it's people that you happen to be seated with on a particular Sunday, which, by the way, I know that we get into our patterns, and I'm not necessarily saying we need to change that, but if you ever thought of sitting on the opposite side, you know, with a different, you know, with a, with a different set, right? I mean, like, that's not going to do it, right? That's not the, the golden, the silver bullet. But do we actually get out of our rhythms and patterns and routines in order to, you know, guess where the new people sit? Guess where the new people sit? Back there. They sit back there. Which means that there ought to be a certain amount of gravitation a little bit toward the back after the service, right? Because we're trying to engage with people who are, who are newer. That's, I don't, don't get me wrong. Don't go back row Baptist on me and all of you just sit in the back seats. I don't want that. Right? Let's make the visitors sit up front because there's no other seats. Yeah, that'll go really well. All right. Obviously, home group is an, is an obvious context in which to develop these relationships. Strike up conversation. If you're having difficulty thinking about that, talk to an elder. Say, I'm interested in meeting up with another person one-on-one for mutual encouragement. They'll likely have suggestions. All right, when should you meet up? You know, it does, you know, texting is great, and I actually really want to encourage that, but honestly, it's, a lot of this is going to happen with meets up. You know, how that's going to be a function of your own schedule. You know, we've got different situations. You know, Jamal's free on Mondays and Tuesdays. He doesn't work, he works Wednesday through Saturday. Right, so that so I know that if I want to touch base with Jamal, you know Jamal is more available on Mondays and Tuesdays. He's not available on a Thursday, right? You know, if I work, you know, Alex now has a new schedule where he's off on Mondays. So I know that Mondays is something that you know, you know. So you're working with one another to try and develop a schedule. Damon's schedule is impossible, so we just don't, you know, you know, things like that. You know, Derek's on every other weekend. Ken's off every, the same weekend, right? You know, it's, so it, you try and work with one another's schedules. You try and have some, you know, obviously if you're trying to be intentional with someone, you want to meet with them, you know, more than just once a blue moon. You know, something that's regular is kind of nice, is kind of helpful. It doesn't have to be regimented in terms of time. Now let's get real practical. What are some ways to have meetups, especially for those of you who are in, have odd schedules? Or odd life circumstances, like three children under four, or things like that. How can, okay, guys who are in the work world, what are some times and ways that you can connect with other guys? 
Breakfast before work. Breakfast before work, right? Takes some sacrifice and shut eye, right? Breakfast before work can can sometimes work unless you're can't eat it unless you get up at three. Right? Well, you can get up at two thirty. Okay, breakfast at work. What other times? Lunches can sometimes work. We're at a church that's relatively spread out, and so that can you know that can be tricky. But if you have some flexibility, lunches. What about what about moms with young kids? Playdates. Hmm? Playdates. Playdates. Play can be chaotic, but they can actually be they can be useful. Beach days could be could be one. Right. What other things? What other ways? Moms with young kids. Get either time to invest in others or be invested. Uh, we've had moms who have taken our girls under their wing by driving them home for babysitting and these talking stuff. Okay, great. Driving home for babysitting. That's great. How about just inviting someone someone else over and say, I'm just going to be folding my laundry. Come watch me fold my laundry, and we'll, we can chat. Right? Does that take a certain amount of humility because you're letting them see your laundry? Yeah. yeah. You know, you you got to make it work, right? You you work with what you have. What about older ladies? Maybe saying, "Let me come and fold your laundry while you hold your," you know, or or let me come hold your baby while you fold the laundry, or things like that. You know, you it doesn't have to be this. You don't have to find some special magic imaginary time where, you know, no children are crying and no, you know, dishes are being needed to be done or anything like that. Like, just saying, make it happen in the course, you know, I, I love Kevin's uh, thing that he said last week. If something's worth doing, it's worth doing poorly. I love that. I love that. Yeah, Chris, you had something. I did. Uh, oh, I had I had a friend who used to ask if she could go grocery shopping with me. That's fantastic. Trips to Home Depot, fishing. Uh, I know uh, BJ. I asked BJ, what would you want someone to do? What would so, if someone was looking to do this? He'd say, if a guy, if it was a guy, I'd say, find some young kid who wants to learn how to fish and to go take him fishing, and invest in them like that. I was like, well, that's really good. I don't know how to fish, so I'll have to find something else. Okay. It could be, how about how we use our commutes? Do we use our commutes for phone calls? You know, now that we all have devices, most of us have devices that can, can talk, and then you go over a mountain and the call shuts off and you call them back and stuff like that. But, you know, can we, can we spend time? Can we utilize our, our car time? Can we use texting? By all means, use texting. Just don't only use texting. What other ones? What other ones come to mind? Other ways that you can scrape time to be with people. Shoveling. Shoveling, what do you mean? Like shoveling when it snows. Okay, yeah. Yeah. You can, so call someone over and ask them to help you shovel? Or, yeah. Great. Great. Jeff will, Jeff will be right over. <laughs> yeah, Chris? Josiah is having your, like, your hands free thingy on. So you can talk while you're huffing and puffing. While you're huffing What if you're on the treadmill and you have the ability to, and you don't have the exercise-induced asthma that I have, and so you can, you can actually, you know, call and, and make a call while you're doing your cardio. 
going for a walk with someone. I hear the ladies, some of the ladies can actually do it. That's a fair amount of that. I think sometimes you can also just free yourself up to actually go on a dinner with someone. Like, like I, I know we're talking about doing things at the same time, but I think also just for me as a mom, it was really helpful when Eric would just say, yeah, go spend time with that person. I've got the kids. Like, that was really encouraging to me because I didn't yeah. have to... Free your spouse up and participate in this. You know, in order, you know, men, let your ask your wives, do you want to go to flourish? I'll make it happen. You know, do you want to go to um, Tuesday nights usually? Heart to heart. Do you want to go to heart to heart? You know, go. I'll, I've got this. You know, women, hey, hey, buddy, go off to four, men's 416. You know, I know that I've had the kids all day, you know, but, you know, I still think you should go. That doesn't, it's not, it doesn't mean it has to happen every time, you know. Okay, the what, and this is perhaps the hardest thing. What are we going to do? What are we going to talk about? I'll tell you what. All you have to do, if you don't have anything else, do you know what you can do? You can sit down with someone and talk about how life's going for a bit, and then say, where are you in your Bible reading? Oh, I'm five months behind, right? Okay, where would you like to do some reading? Okay, let's open to John. And you read a chapter of John, and you talk about it really briefly, and you pray. What can I pray for you for? Is that going to be an edifying time? Are you going to do it perfectly, and it's not going to be awkward at all? Uh, maybe, maybe not, right? But it doesn't actually have to take... How did you, how did you, what did you think about last week's sermon? I, this is what encouraged me. You know, here's what I needed. Uh, so... You could go through a book. You could pray together through the RGC directory. What about that? You know, uh, Dean is away. Dean and Carol are away for a month. But I said to him, he's my small group leader, I said, let's spend two times while you're gone. We'll get on the phone and we'll pray for the people in our home group. And that's all we're going to do for half an hour. I thought it was, it was something. Right? Get, you know, if you, if you need ideas, get ideas from somebody. Okay. Conclusion. The local church is a wonderful blessing. Live to get, living together as a church provides opportunity for us to be fruitful in one another's lives. Will you, this is what our membership vow says, will you be committed to RGC's body, which includes participating consistently in Sunday morning worship, right, that's not forsaking our gathering together, and being devoted to one another in prayer, service, and love. All right, let's pray.